Congressional Debate. House of Representatives. On its first day, the 8th Congress considered the designation amendment. The first formulation of the amendment had the five highest electoral vote earners on the ballot in the House if no one candidate had a majority of the electoral votes. Democratic-Republican John Clopton of Virginia, the largest state in the Union, argued that having five names on the list for a contingency election took the power from the people, so he proposed that there be only two names on the list. On October 20th, the House appointed a 17-member committee, one representative from each state, to fine-tune the amendment. The original proposal starting in the New York State Legislature would have, along with designation, put forward the idea of the district election of electors that Treasury Secretary Gallatin had supported. Shortly after the committee was formed, Federalist Benjamin Huger attempted to add a provision regarding district elections to the proposed amendment, but the committee ignored him. The committee then submitted an updated version of the designation amendment to the House on October 23 that changed the number of candidates in a contingency election from 5 to 3 and allowed the Senate to choose the vice president if there were a tie in that race. Small Federalist states disliked the change from 5 to 3 because it made it far less likely that a small state candidate would make it to a contingency election. Huger and New York Federalist Gaylord Griswold argued that the Constitution was a compromise between large and small states and the method chosen by the framers is supposed to check the influence of the larger states. Huger even asserted that the Constitution itself was not a union of people, but a union of large and small states in order to justify the original framework for electing the president. Designation, argued Griswold and Huger, would violate the spirit of the Constitution by taking away a check on the power of the large states. Next up for the Federalists was Seth Hastings of Massachusetts, who submitted the argument that the designation amendment rendered the vice presidency useless and advocated for the elimination of the three-fifths clause. John C. Smith asked the inflammatory question of whether the proposed amendment was to help Jefferson get re-elected. Speaker Nathaniel Macon called this inappropriate. After Matthew Lyon of Kentucky denounced any reference to the three-fifths clause as mere provocation, the House easily passed the resolution 88-39 on October 28. Many Northern representatives argued for the elimination of the Electoral College, and argued for direct election of the President by all U.S. voters. Senate. By October 28, the Senate had already been discussing the designation amendment. Democratic-Republican DeWitt Clinton expected that the Senate, with a 24-9 Democratic-Republican majority would quickly pass the amendment. Federalist Jonathan Dayton proposed that the office of the Vice President should be eliminated and his colleague, Uriah Tracy, seconded it. On the other side, Wilson Carey Nicholas was simply worried that Congress would not submit the amendment in time for the states to ratify it before the 1804 election. Despite Nicholas' concern, the Senate would not seriously deal with the amendment again until November 23. Much as it had in the House, debate centered around the number of candidates in a contingency election and the philosophical underpinnings of the Constitution. Again, small Federalist states vehemently argued that three candidates gave too much power to large states to pick presidents. Senator Pierce Butler of South Carolina argued that the issues with the election of 1800 were unlikely to happen again and he would not advocate changing the Constitution simply to stop a Federalist vice president. John Quincy Adams argued that the change from 5 to 3 gave an advantage to the people that violated the federative principle of the Constitution. Rather than have the office of the president balanced between the states and the people, Adams felt designation of president and vice president would tip that scale in favor of the people. Federalist senators argued for retaining the original procedure for the Electoral College. Senator Samuel White of Delaware claimed that the original procedure had not been given a fair experiment and criticized the proposed amendment for entrenching the two-party system which had taken over presidential elections. In response, the Democratic-Republicans appealed to Democratic principles. 
Samuel Smith of Maryland argued that the presidency ought to be as closely accountable to the people as possible. As such, having three candidates in a contingency election is far better than having five, because it would otherwise be possible to have the fifth best candidate become president. Also, designation itself would drastically cut down the number of elections that would reach the House of Representatives, and the president is then much more likely to be the people's choice. Another of Smith's arguments was simply the election of 1800. William Koch of Tennessee took a different approach when he argued that the entire small state argument of the Federalists was simply out of self-interest. One last order of business for the amendment was to deal with the possibility that the House would fail to choose a president by March 4th. It was the least controversial portion of the Twelfth Amendment and John Taylor proposed that the vice president would take over as president in that peculiar occurrence, as in case of the death or other constitutional disability of the president. It seemed clear all along that the Democratic-Republican dominance would render this a no contest and the Democratic-Republicans were just waiting for all their votes to be present, but the Federalists had one last defense. A marathon session of debate from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. was the order of the day on December 2, 1803. Most notably, Uriah Tracy of Connecticut argued in a similar vein as Adams when he invoked the federative principle of the Constitution. Tracy claimed the original procedure was formulated to give the small states a chance to elect the vice president, who would be a check on the president's powers. In essence, the states balance the power of the people. However, this works only if you make it partisan, as Georgia, for example, was a Democratic-Republican small state. Proposal and Ratification the Twelfth Amendment was proposed by the Eighth Congress on December 9, 1803, when it was approved by the House of Representatives by vote of 84-42, having been previously passed by the Senate, 22-10, on December 2. The amendment was officially submitted to the states on December 12, 1803, and was ratified by the legislatures of the following states. 1. North Carolina, December 22, 1803. 2. Maryland, December 24, 1803. 3. Kentucky, December 27, 1803. 4. Ohio, December 30, 1803. 5. Pennsylvania, January 5, 1804. 6. Vermont, January 30, 1804. 7. Virginia, February 3, 1804. 8. New York, February 10, 1804. 9. New Jersey, February 22, 1804. 10. Rhode Island, March 12, 1804. 11. South Carolina, May 15, 1804. 12. Georgia, May 19, 1804. 13. New Hampshire, June 15, 1804. Having been ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, 13 of 17, the ratification of the Twelfth Amendment was completed and it became a part of the Constitution. It was subsequently ratified by. 14. Tennessee, July 27, 1804. 15. Massachusetts, 1961. The amendment was rejected by Delaware, on January 18, 1804, and by Connecticut, on May 10, 1804. In a September 25, 1804, circular letter to the governors of the states, Secretary of State James Madison declared the amendment ratified by three-fourths of the states. Electoral College under the Twelfth Amendment. While the Twelfth Amendment did not change the composition of the Electoral College, it did change the process whereby a president and a vice president are elected. The new electoral process was first used for the 1804 election. Each presidential election since has been conducted under the terms of the Twelfth Amendment. The Twelfth Amendment stipulates that each elector must cast distinct votes for president and vice president, instead of two votes for president. Additionally, electors may not vote for presidential and vice presidential candidates who both reside in the elector's state, 
at least one of them must be an inhabitant of another state. If no candidate for president has a majority of the total votes, the House of Representatives, voting by states and with the same quorum requirements as under the original procedure, chooses the president. The Twelfth Amendment requires the House to choose from the three highest receivers of electoral votes, compared to five under the original procedure. The Twelfth Amendment requires a person to receive a majority of the electoral votes for vice president for that person to be elected vice president by the Electoral College. If no candidate for vice president has a majority of the total votes, the Senate, with each senator having one vote, chooses the vice president. The Twelfth Amendment requires the Senate to choose between the candidates with the two highest numbers of electoral votes. If multiple individuals are tied for second place, the Senate may consider them all. The Twelfth Amendment introduced a quorum requirement of two-thirds of the whole number of senators for the conduct of balloting. Furthermore, the Twelfth Amendment requires the Senate to choose a vice president by way of the affirmative votes of a majority of the whole number of senators. To prevent deadlocks from keeping the nation leaderless, the Twelfth Amendment provided that if the House did not choose a president before March 4, then the first day of a presidential term, the individual elected vice president would act as president, as in the case of the death or other constitutional disability of the president. The Twelfth Amendment did not state for how long the vice president would act as president or if the House could still choose a president after March 4. Section 3 of the Twentieth Amendment, adopted in 1933, supersedes that provision of the Twelfth Amendment by changing the date upon which a new presidential term commences to January 20, clarifying that the vice president-elect would only act as president if the House has not chosen a president by January 20, and permitting Congress to statutorily provide who shall then act as president or the manner in which one who is to act shall be selected if there is no president-elect or vice-president-elect by January 20. It also clarifies that if there is no president-elect on January 20, whoever acts as president does so until a person qualified to occupy the presidency is elected to be president. Interaction with the 22nd Amendment The Twelfth Amendment explicitly states the constitutional requirements as provided for the president also apply to being vice-president, and the 22nd Amendment bars a two-term president from being elected to a third term but it is unexplicit whether these amendments together bar any two-term president from later serving as vice president as well as from succeeding to the presidency from any point in the United States presidential line of succession. Some contend that the Twelfth Amendment concerns qualification for service, while the Twenty-Second Amendment concerns qualifications for election, and thus a former two-term president is still eligible to serve as vice president. Some legal scholars propose the contention above would inadequately consider the opportunity it affords for one to serve as president more than two terms plus as president, for more than two years, resulting in a violation of the 22nd Amendment. The interaction between the two amendments has not been tested, as no twice-elected president has ever been nominated for the vice presidency. Hillary Clinton jokingly said during her 2016 presidential campaign that she had considered naming her husband, twice-elected former President Bill Clinton as her vice presidential running mate, but had been advised it would be unconstitutional. This constitutional ambiguity allowed for speculation in 2020 about whether twice-elected former President Barack Obama was eligible to be vice president. Election since 1804. Certificate for the electoral vote for Rutherford B. Hayes and William O. Wheeler for the state of Louisiana. Starting with the election of 1804, each presidential election has been conducted under the Twelfth Amendment. Only once since then has the House of Representatives chosen the president in a contingent election, in the 1824 election as none of the four candidates won an absolute majority, 131 at the time, of electoral votes, Andrew Jackson received 99 electoral votes, John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams, 84, William H. Crawford 41, and Henry Clay 37. As the House could consider only the top three candidates, Clay was eliminated, 
while Crawford's poor health following a stroke and heart attack made his election by the House unlikely. Jackson expected the House to vote for him, as he had won a plurality of both the popular and electoral votes. Instead, the House elected Adams on the first ballot with 13 states, followed by Jackson with seven and Crawford with four. Clay had endorsed Adams for the presidency, which carried additional weight because Clay was the Speaker of the House. Adams subsequently appointed Clay as his Secretary of State, to which Jackson and his supporters responded by accusing the pair of making a corrupt bargain. In the election for Vice President, John C. Calhoun, the running mate of both Jackson and Adams, was elected outright, receiving 182 electoral votes. In 1836, the Whig Party nominated four different candidates in different regions, aiming to splinter the electoral vote while denying Democratic nominee Martin Van Buren an electoral majority and forcing a contingent election. The Whig strategy narrowly failed as Van Buren won an electoral vote majority and an apparent popular vote majority, winning Pennsylvania by 4,222 votes. In South Carolina, whose presidential electors were Whigs, no popular vote was held as the state legislature chose the electors. The basis for the Whig strategy lay in a severe state-level Democratic Party split in Pennsylvania that propelled the Whig-aligned anti-Masonic party to statewide power. Party alignments by state in the House of Representatives suggest that any contingent election would have had an uncertain outcome, with none of the candidates, Van Buren, William Henry Harrison and Hugh White, having a clear path to victory. In that same election, no candidate for vice president secured an electoral majority as the Democratic electors from Virginia refused to vote for Democratic vice presidential nominee, Richard Mentor Johnson, due to his relationship with a former slave, and instead cast their votes for William Smith. As a result, Johnson received 147 electoral votes, one vote short of a majority, followed by Francis Granger with 77, John Tyler with 47 and Smith with 23. Thus, it became necessary for the Senate to hold a contingent election between Johnson and Granger for vice president, which Johnson won on the first ballot with 33 votes to Granger's 16. Since 1836, no major U.S. party has nominated multiple regional presidential or vice presidential candidates in an election. However, since the Civil War, there have been two serious attempts by Southern-based parties to run regional candidates in hopes of denying either of the two major candidates an electoral college majority. Both attempts, in 1948 and 1968, narrowly failed. In both cases, a shift in the result of two or three close states would have forced these respective elections into the House. In modern elections, a running mate is often selected in order to appeal to a different set of voters. A habitation clause issue arose during the 2000 presidential election contested by George W. Bush, running mate Dick Cheney, and Al Gore, running mate Joe Lieberman, because it was alleged that Bush and Cheney were both inhabitants of Texas and that the Texas electors therefore violated the Twelfth Amendment in casting their ballots for both. Texas' 32 electoral votes were necessary in order to secure Bush and Cheney a majority in the Electoral College. With the Democrats picking up four seats in the Senate to equal the Republicans at 50 seats each in the chamber, the outcome of a contingent election in the Senate, especially if it had happened after the newly elected senators had been seated, would have been far from certain. In fact, such an election in 2000, had it happened, would have determined which party controlled the Senate. Bush's residency was unquestioned, as he was governor of Texas at the time. However, Cheney and his wife had moved to Dallas five years earlier when he assumed the role of chief executive at Halliburton. Cheney had grown up in Wyoming, had represented it in Congress and had continuously maintained a residence in the state during his tenure at Halliburton. A few months before the election, he switched his voter registration and driver's license to Wyoming and put his home in Dallas up for sale. Three Texas voters challenged the election in a federal court in Dallas and then appealed the decision to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, where it was dismissed.
The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.